This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 656, and we welcome back Dr. Lisa Brosseau. We're going to discuss respirators and masking after two years of research and real world experience what have we learned and what should we be doing in the future before we get started we want to thank our sponsors they're the reason we can continue doing the show and don't forget about afterthoughts after the show at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com sponsored by first on site our marquee sponsor is instascope at instascope.com CO. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com. April Air, AprilAIRE.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to report that Jack Springston, Atlas Technical, New York City, was first to identify mold as what by the early 1990s had become the top complaint of occupants in non-industrial workplaces. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, March 4th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation of the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Intended to minimize worker exposures to hazardous chemicals and other risk factors in the workplace. An international example of this concept in use is the procedure for the transportation of dangerous chemicals, whereby chemicals are classified with United Nations or UN codes that are used for identifying safe storage rules, permitted types of transport containers, and actions to take in case of an emergency. Name the concept. Back to you, Joe. Well, we better put that one in the in the chat there, Cliff. That's I a will. Long, that's, that's a long one. one. I'll get it. All right. Dr. Brasso, now retired, was a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health, where she was the director of the Illinois Education and Research Center, which supported graduate and continuing education for occupational health and safety professionals. She began her career as an academic researcher and educator at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, where she directed the industrial hygiene program. She continues to serve as a mentor and technical advisor on research projects and for businesses and organizations, including the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP. SIDRAP is a center within the University of Minnesota that focuses on addressing public health perspectives and emerging infectious disease response. Welcome back, Dr. Brosseau. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Glad to be here. It's great to have you back. The last time we talked about the answer to the quiz, so I'm not going to say it. I almost, almost I just caught myself. But um, this time we want to focus more on what you know was kind of your your passion and your early research was all on uh, respirators, or a lot of it was on respirators. And I was wondering if we could start out by maybe doing a little like brief history of, of respiratory protection. Sure. <laughs> you know, respirators actually go back. I think thousands of years to uh, the Romans. They've, they've got descriptions of people wearing pig bladders and other strange things on their heads uh, in mining. But um, 
sort of modern respirators kind of came about in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, mining, um, war warfare, you know, using chemicals, and, and then of course industrialization really sort of pushed the development of better respirators and more innovative designs that workers could wear um, you know, to protect themselves from a lot of hazardous materials. And then, uh, so the Bureau of Mines was the first uh, certifying or regulating organization in the United States for respirators. Eventually, NIOSH, uh, after the um, you know, 1970, uh, put together both OSHA and NIOSH as regulatory agencies or as research agencies. Um, NIOSH took over eventually the regulation and approval and certification of respirators. And uh, so they're responsible for that. And you know, there's been a lot of interesting uh, developments in respirator design over the years. Um, the, uh, probably you know, we started out with things like elastomeric respirators in industrial settings and added cartridges that were good for many different chemicals. And then eventually got some pretty good filters. Um, I was telling Joe and Cliff before we got started, I did research on uh, these old electrostatic filters that were made from um, resin impregnated wool uh, called dust mist fume filters. But um, I think in the 80s, we began to see much, 70s and 80s began to see much better filters. And now we have Electret, uh, you know, sp spun non-woven filters that are very, very effective. So lots of changes, lots of improvements in design, fit, testing, et cetera over the years. When we talked earlier, you had mentioned that over the past 20 years, um, respirator use in healthcare has been a focus, I think, of NIOSH. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and why it's become such a focus. You know, I think it started um, really around the time of tuberculosis, which was late 80s, early 90s. So when I was coming of age as an academic, and, uh, you know, there was, because of the uh, because of HIV, um, tuberculosis was a problem in terms of patients because they were susceptible to many different diseases and became an occupational problem because nurses and, correction and, and healthcare workers and correctional facility workers and others uh, were exposed and um, some even died from exposure to tuberculosis, which really wasn't a, a disease I mean, it's endemic in other areas of the world, but not certainly not in the United States. And I think that really pushed NIOSH um, in the direction of trying to understand better what, uh, what we need in terms of biological aerosols. And uh, then along came, you know, many other problems and uh, you know, novel H1N1, SARS, MERS, all of those are you know, they impact healthcare more than they impact the rest of the, you know, the, the public, so to speak. Um, even Ebola, it was more of a healthcare problem than it really was a public exposure issue. And um, I think healthcare has one disadvantage, which is that they've relied on surgical masks for so many years that it was really hard to convince them that surgical masks are not respirators. They don't provide respiratory protection. So that's sort of the battle that I, I have found myself fighting for most of my career is trying to encourage and improve the use of, of respirators and, and, and the acceptance of respirators in healthcare settings. And, and when you say that surgical masks are not really respirators, they're, I think they're considered like a source control. Is that accurate? That, that's, that was their original expectation and design is that they would prevent, they were worn in surgery to prevent um, emission of bacteria uh, from the per people who were doing the, the surgery, uh, speaking, talking, breathing, and, um, you know, uh, prevent the infection of wounds or of open, uh, open wounds. Uh, unfortunately, surgical masks actually proved to not be very effective even at that. Uh, there have been a, a few studies that demonstrate they don't really change the wound, you know, the uh, surgical infection rates. 
Um, but they later became something that people would wear also to protect them from splashes and sprays. And um, so they were, they are, there are some who argue, well, it does provide some personal protective equipment. When people tell me that, I often say, would we ever use a surgical mask in a chemical setting or a laboratory to prevent splashes and sprays? Probably not goggles, face shields, other things like that will do a better job. But the surgical mask is sort of, as one, uh, one um, investigator wrote, it's sort of a sacred cow to the, to the healthcare industry. And it's hard for them to, to give up despite the evidence that it doesn't really provide any, inward, it certainly doesn't prevent inward leakage and uh, inhalation of hazardous aerosols. Small, especially smaller particles. And, and yet we still see them used today uh, with people who are working with COVID or possible COVID patients. That's right. Yeah, it was um, early on, respirators, CDC actually all throughout the, the pandemic required that anyone providing care for, you know, direct care to COVID patients suspected or confirmed should be wearing a respirator, at least an N95 filtering face piece respirator, but and the patient should have a surgical mask on, which seemed re seems a reasonable expectation. But eventually, they decided to recommend universal masking in health all healthcare settings, meaning everyone had to wear a surgical mask. And in retrospect, I think it would have been better if we had had the supplies, especially early in the pandemic that everyone should have been wearing a respirator. And we could talk a little more about that coming up. And we're going to. <laughs> All right, let's start with the N95, N99. Well, N95, there's N, R, and P. Uh, right. No oil or resistant oil proof, as I understand it. 95, 99, and 100. First, let's get a little background on the difference between 95, 99, and 100. Is it a different material? Is it woven differently? Is it designed to fit differently? Um, you know, it depends on where the filter is, whether it looks very different. Um, an N90, a 99 or 100 as a filter in a filtering face piece respirator probably won't look much different, but it might be somewhat thicker. Um, in a cartridge, uh, like on an elastomeric respirator, it might be a folded material because the problem as you increase the efficiency is you also increase the breathing resistance. And so you fold the filter to get more surface area to lower that breathing resistance. So, you know, we, when we talk about HEPA filters, those are 99 and 100 uh, type filters. The, you usually see that they're highly folded, right? In, in indoor air filters, certainly they would be highly folded. Um, I will tell you though, for most of the workplace exposures um, and aerosols that we encounter, a 95 filter is actually very good. They, they're really over-engineered in many ways because the test requires that you test at 85 liters a minute which is way beyond what most people breathe, except if they're working very, very hard, say in a construction job. So, I mean, most of us breathe at about 10, 20, maybe 30 liters a minute. Um, that 85 liters per minute test at the most penetrating particle size means that when you're breathing at, at your typical breathing rate, you can get much better, higher uh, efficiency for a filter. And so, in most, the reason for the 99 and the 100 has to do more with how toxic the material is and how much we worry about uh, any, any amount getting through the filter. So while I say a 95 and an, is, has, a, has a lot of efficiency, a 99 and 100 are much, will be even more efficient, but you do have that trade-off of breathing resistance for those filters. And so I assume that is why the N95s are, are more popular, more commonly used. You rarely see, you know, R99s or P100s except in occupational situations. But I still wonder, though, 
you know, with people dealing with COVID in a hospital, they're dealing with a COVID patient. It doesn't seem to get much more hazardous than that. And they're still in maybe an N95 if they're lucky. You know, it's in the context of protection, the filter is not the thing I worry about, um, especially not for, for COVID, uh, you know, for respiratory uh, droplets or, or aerosols. Most of those are relatively large. They're, I mean, large is, is in the context of aerosols. They're, they are around one micron. Um, which is collected quite well by any filter, any of these respirator filters. But the real issue is a filtering face piece respirator can have a, a certain amount of leakage around the face, right? Because the assigned protection factor uh, for the, that class of respirators, a half mask air purifying negative pressure respirator is 10, which means that it reduces the outside concentration by 10 times for the inside or the up. Another way of thinking is the inside concentration is 10 times less than the outside. That's still um, a certain amount of leakage around the face piece, which with a hazardous aerosol, it could be, a, that, that's where you could be concerned. It could be, and if the concentration is very high, uh, you could get a, quite a, a dose in a very short period of time wearing a filtering face piece respirator. So that's really why, you know, occupational hygienists recommend that we go to something better when you're doing something like an aerosol generating procedure, or you're with somebody who's very infectious and symptomatic. That would be something like a powered air purifying respirator or a full face piece, elastomeric respirator. Those things will have much, they have better, higher protection factors. So I'm, it's not the filter really that I'm worried about. Um, and, and NIOSH or CDC said with, you know, input from NIOSH, I'm sure that uh, if you didn't have an N95 and there were lots of shortages early in the pandemic, you could use any filter. And they were right about that. Any filter would have worked fine. Um, and you could use any type of uh, filtering face piece respirator. I, I've got Wait, a, I've got go a ahead, follow up if, if I could. Um, gosh, I, I've been in this industry for a long time on the remediation side. And, you know, I was familiar with N's and P's and so on and so forth, because that's what we had in the United States. And then all of a sudden, you know, when we had COVID, all of a sudden, these filters start showing up that I suspect were made overseas that begin with K and begin with other initials. And how do they compare? How are they different? You know, someone had told me it was face shape is different, uh, you know, for people in the United States than, you know, people from Asia and so on and so forth. Can you straighten us out on that? Um, again, you have to think about both the filter and then the design of the face piece as something okay. separate. So let's talk the, the filters. And I am not an expert at all on the, the testing methods from other countries, but I I have, uh, I have read a little bit about this. So the KN95 is a Chinese-made um, and Chinese-certified or approved uh, filter and mask or respirator. And those, you know, NIOSH did testing of a variety of KN95 filters uh, and respirators throughout the pandemic and posted the results on their website. The um, Chinese method of testing is not very different it's from the NIOSH one. So this, the filter is pretty similar as long as it's not fake. And that's, that was part of the problem. There were a lot of, lot of um, uh, fake respirators calling themselves you know, KN95 or, or even N95 for that matter that were really not. So you know, when people asked me what, what should I do, I said at least... Um, for an N95, check the certification list on NIOSH's website to make sure you, and make sure that it has all the markings on the respirator that you expect to see, the TC marking for the approval, for example. Um, but you should also, you could also test or check the NIOSH website for whether or not they tested any of the KN95s to see what they found. And some of them were just as good and some of them were not quite as good. So, you know, it was important to look, look at that. But the other issue with most of those um, KN95s is that they are ear loop, 
not um, straps. And while ear loops are quite comfortable and people like them, and I will admit to wearing ear loop um, respirators uh, during the um, you know, during the pandemic for the for short trips, you know, down to the mailbox. But uh, the ear loop is it's very difficult to get a good face seal. And, and even if they're adjustable, really, it's only in when you you take the ear loops and sort of hook them with something behind the head that you can start to get a really tight fit. And so that's the problem. Straps will give you a better fit than ear loops in most cases. Now, one, one other follow-up, if I might. Um, you know, recently I had to visit uh, someone in the hospital, and, and one of the things that I noticed is a lot of the hospital workers seem to be wearing a mask with a different shape. It almost looks like a beak or, or, or whatever. Uh, yep. Can you just comment uh, on, on that? Oh, you know, filtering face piece respirators come in all sorts of shapes and sizes these okay. days. Okay. Um, there are flat folds, duck bills, um, you know, they've boat shaped, uh, they've got all sorts of names for them. Okay. The key is if they're certified, um, then what you want to see is marking on the front that says N95 with the TC number. And then you know that that is a, um, you know, a real NIOSH certified respirator. But yeah, they come in wild shapes these days okay. and end with, you know, uh, some come with all sorts of uh, coverings on them, uh, some to keep the shape better, some to protect the outside of the, you know, protect the filter so mm -hmm. it, 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 uh, you can reuse it. Um, lots of changes, lots of differences in the inside features to help them sit better on your face. But, you know, the thing is with these ones that are flat fold that fold out and seem very large, those are actually very comfortable for the same reason I just talked about. They have a lot of surface area, plus they have a lot of volume inside, which is more comfortable than if you ever compared wearing one of those with wearing a, a cloth mask tight against your face, you know the difference in terms of how uncomfortable a cloth mm -hmm. mask tight against your face is. What you want is some volume that you can breathe in and out of. Thank you very much. Sure. You know, I think before we move into a little more on masks versus respirators, let's talk a little bit about the um, effects of factors such as sweating, heavy work, beards, etc. On With an N95 or an elastometric respirator, how important are those factors and, and how much do they reduce the protection you get? Um, we've never, so the research on beards is that they do impact fit, um, it, even a little bit of beard can impact fit. Uh, it isn't predictable, however. So um, you really, I mean, for some people, it may be very little, for others, it may be quite a lot. So the policy is people should be clean shaven. Just, uh, we have no way of knowing whether your beard is going to impact your fit or not, and we think it probably will. So that's, that's the, the sweating. And, and, you know, there were a number of healthcare workers that uh, complained about, um, you know, face, face uh, um, injury, facial and in, in skin injuries. And that is a possibility, certainly, from wearing a respirator over time, especially if you wear it tightly, you know, pulled quite tight against your face. And uh, there are some skin protectants that pe some people have used. I, there's not a lot of research on those in terms of how they impact fit. I, I've started to see some more research on that in the literature recently. So uh, I, I do think we will start to know more about the impact of, of um, and, and that's caused both by pressure as well as by sweating and by temp you know, the temperature, a high temperature and relative humidity inside of the, uh, the, the respirator. Um, if we could have figured out how to use um, respirators that had exhalation valves. And the worry there was that the exhalation valve would release infectious particles from the wearer. Mm -hmm. But if we could have figured out how to make, uh, you know, to use uh, respirators, either filtering face piece or elastomeric with, with exhalation valves, those are much more comfortable in terms of, you know, the buildup of temperature and pressure and might even help alleviate sweating uh, uh, in terms of wear the wear on the face over time. But um, 
those were banned from healthcare, and I think a lot of uh, mask too. mandates and others said you couldn't wear something with an elastomer uh, with the exhalation valve. Another question that comes up quite a lot is um, how much of a health issue is just wearing a respirator all day, whether it's a kid in school or a guy doing asbestos abatement, working his rear end off, lugging heavy bags in and out. How much does um, wearing a respirator affect their health? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a physiologist and I've read the, the research from what I can tell and from the NIOSH guidance there's really very little impact on one's physiologic, you know, well-being from wearing a respirator. But we all know that putting something on your face and wearing it for long periods of time, um, there's a certain amount of discomfort associated with that. What I also know is that you have, it, it, you have to be acclimated um, and over time wearing a respirator can be, can get easier. Um, so it's that, sort of initial wearing a uh, first week or so that really can be, you know, people will complain about that. Certainly there are those who uh, feel a certain amount of claustrophobia when they put something on their face. That is that evaluation of that or of, you know, whether you have medical conditions, cardiac breathing, whatever conditions that uh, put you at some risk when you wear a respirator. Those are the things that a medical clearance should be able to evaluate. And anyone who's wearing a respirator in a workplace should be evaluated for medical, you know, by a medical professional for any issues that they might have in terms of putting the respirator on. But filtering face piece respirators in particular are not, are not particularly, they, they don't really put a great deal of um, strain on you. And you can always take it off. I mean, you can always leave the space and take it off if you have to. And I, I think that question will become a little more important as we talk about wearing respirators with or without fit testing and medical evaluation. And um, so that's why I wanted to set that up here early. Now, the, the next question we had was, um, Respirators versus masks. And I know we're going to go into this in a lot more detail when we go into um, one of the documents here, the commentary on what can masks do. Um, what is the current science on what masks can do with respect to assisting us with things like COVID or maybe, maybe even just like I remember when I was in my uh, younger days, in my 18 to 22 range, I did a lot of roofing and um, I did uh, slate roof tear off where we tore off the old slate tiles and it was a very dirty, dusty job. So we would wear a bandana over our face. And actually, I found that it, that it helped quite a bit with at least the amount of, you know, stuff that I was blowing out of my nose and coughing out of my lungs. But um, I'm curious what we have found so far right today with respect to using masks and whether they're helpful or not. Um, good question, Joe. <laughs> so, you know, that bandana you were wearing is, it can do a good job with really big stuff, you know, so you were, and when you're crushing something or banging on stone, you're creating a lot of dust, which is quite large in size. And all that large stuff is being thrown up into your face. So you're protecting yourself um, from, from all of that. Um, the problem with COVID is it isn't exactly like that kind of exposure. When people exhale, whether they're breathing, talking, coughing, sneezing, whatever, they exhale a lot of um, small particles and also some larger ones, especially if they're coughing or sneezing. Those particles um, can take, can, if you're infected, can contain the virus. And as I said, a, a large quantity of them will center it around one micron and many smaller as well. Well, those are captured by filters, but they are uh, fairly well, but they have, we have some problems in terms of catching that size um, when there's a lot of leakage around the face, you know, and a cloth, well, wearing a cloth mask tightly against the face and two layers was the recommendation from CDC. What CDC didn't understand was, or didn't um, you know, reflect accurately was 
that's a very um, difficult thing to breathe through over time. Cloth is not designed, I mean, if you want cloth to be very efficient, you just need to keep adding layers. Uh, but the more layers you add, the higher, harder it is to breathe through. So when people wear cloth masks over time, you see them moving their mask under their nose or even under their mouth because they just can't, they can't deal with the breathing resistance. Um, they're uncomfortable. So, it, and so there's leakage both inward and outward from a cloth mask. And the same is true for a surgical mask, uh, which is certainly not designed to fit well. And most of those have lot, lo lots of gaps uh, around on the, on the sides, on the top, on the bottom. Um, so if we are worried about you know, the early messaging about face masks, or cloth masks was you're protecting the people around you. And that, that may be true if you, all of those large droplets are captured as you know, outward. I think there's unfortunately a lot of leakage around the side of a cloth mask or a surgical mask. Um, and it's those smaller particles that stay airborne and expose people. But the other problem I have with that message and I had all the way through the pandemic is it makes us um, you know, blame other people around us who are not wearing a mask because they're not protecting us. And instead of you know, suggesting that we wear something better like a respirator, which offers both source control and personal protection, that would have been a better way to get people to wear something and wear something more effective so they protect themselves as well as each other. I think we could have had a lot, of, lot less animosity about wearing respirators really than we've had about wearing masks. And when we've looked at the mask studies, um, you know, community studies, they don't really show a whole lot of efficacy in terms of um, protecting people or preventing transmission from person to person. Let's, what, we, what I'd like to do is let's take a little break for our halftime here. And when we come back, we, I'd like to pull up the document that we, we referenced here and, and go into a little more detail on that topic. So we'll be right back with Dr. Lisa Rousseau, our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We're talking about respirators versus masks. What have we learned from the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, John, if you could pull up that document we mentioned, I'd like to talk a little bit about a document from the SIDRAP, who we mentioned earlier, um, commentary on what 
Can masks do part one? The science behind COVID-19 protection. And when we pull that up, Lisa, if you could just kind of walk us through the document a little bit and give us some of the key highlights. So um, this, if you go down towards the middle of the, um, it, this whole article, we take, we do a lot of discussion about the differences between respirators and surgical or medical masks and cloth masks. Um, if you go down a little bit further, there's a table that um, illustrates and discusses some differences, tries to illustrate the differences between um, these different things that people put on their faces. And um, this table actually was first published in an ACGIH fact sheet that I developed, helped develop with a COVID-19 task force about a year ago. Um, and then we adapted it for, um, for the SIDRAP commentary and the difference here is that I added non-fit-tested respirators in addition to fit-tested respirators to the table because this was geared towards not just workers, obviously, but to the public. And I was trying to illustrate that a, the public wearing even a non-fit-tested respirator is likely to get better protection than any of these other things that were being recommended. So let me just quickly give you sort of an overview. This is a table that describes how long does it take for someone who's not infected to get an infectious dose. Now, we don't really know what the infectious dose is for you know, SARS-CoV-2, the virus. Um, so let's, but we do suspect it's fairly low. And rather than trying to model on the basis of an infectious dose that I don't know much about, um, I decided to take a simpler view, which was um, the CDC recommends that you would, uh, you would assume that someone could be infected if they were in close contact for 15 minutes for a, you know, a, collect, a collective amount of a cumulative amount of 15 minutes over 24 hours. And so I took that 15 minutes as the time you would have to get an infectious dose if you were wearing, both people are wearing nothing. So the source is wearing nothing and the receiver, the person who's not infected is wearing nothing. And then I just tried, to, and then these, the 15 minutes is simply, you simply um, divide the, um, that amount by the fractional efficiency or leakage of a, of a different of a mask or a respirator. So if the source is wearing nothing, but the receiver is wearing a cloth mask, so the uninfected person has a cloth mask on, they might get about 20 minutes of time. If they're wearing a surgical mask, which has about typical one has about 50% inward and outward leakage, they might get 30 minutes. If you put on a non-fit-tested respirator, you move up into the hours. And if you wear a fit-tested respirator, even more hours. Not eight hours, though, um, keep in mind. If the source is, you know, if you're standing near the source and spending time with them. So an fit-tested N95 filtering face piece respirator is good for um, the direct care of patients as long as you limit the amount of time that you spend with those patients. And then as you move down, um, and let's say that the uh, both the person who is um, treating the patient, let's say, and the patient is wearing a, a math, mask, right. then you could walk us through that. Sure. So let's say we're talking about a patient. So the source is um, wearing it, what was recommended for suspect and confirmed patients was to wear a surgical mask if they could. So that's on the left side, the, um, 50%. If you follow that across to the healthcare worker wearing a fit tested N95 respirator, uh, you see that they get about five hours. So each of these things has some efficacy. The reason I wanted to, I put this together was to illustrate for people that they should not count on a cloth mask or even a surgical mask to give them hours and hours when they are in enclosed spaces with people they don't whose infection status they don't know. 
And obviously, the more people, the greater chance that one or more people is a source. And so we, one of the caveats uh, for this, and we added a whole bunch of points to this um, to, to this table recently because I was getting so many questions about, uh, you know, what, why don't you do this? Why don't you do this with it or that with the uh, table? Um, one thing I wanted to be sure is that people understood, don't count on these numbers as, you know, bright lines between safe and unsafe. So, you know, don't assume that you go into a space <clears throat> and you're wearing a, a surgical mask and now everyone else is wearing nothing that you're gonna get 30 minutes. It's, um, it doesn't take into account the uh, ventilation in the space. It doesn't take into account the number of people. It doesn't take into account uh, that's the size of that space. And it doesn't consider what those people are doing. If they're you know, singing or talking or shouting, there's much, much more aerosol. So, but the idea is to illustrate that with a mask, a cloth mask or a surgical mask, you get minutes, and with um, a even a non-fit tested respirator, you start to move into the uh, a, 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 a much level, a longer time period when you might be protected. And I think when we talked earlier, you felt that um, it was a little surprising, but not a lot, that the non-fit tested N95s would really give us a lot better bang for our buck for lack of a better terminology <laughs> than what we ended up doing, which was, you know, double cloth and, you know, some yeah. people using surgical masks. I mean, personally, my double cloth mask that I made and put a clip on, I feel is much better than a typical surgical mask. So there's going to be, you know, uh, variations on these numbers, but this is giving you an idea so that you can kind of compare, okay, if I'm wearing this and the other person's wearing that, this gives me some idea. And I think the area where you talked about that really struck home with me was, and I guess the key word is home. Um, a lot of this, if not most of the infection occurs in households. Is that accurate? I don't know if most, but um, the estimates are somewhere between 20 and 30%. And of course, we don't know how many people actually were infected because there was so much asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission, and we may never know. But um, even if that's even if it's you know a fourth to a, a fifth to a third of the transmission that's happening, there were very uh, there really wasn't a lot of focus on wearing a mask or or anything in the home. Um, the recommendations were to, you know, separate yourself from someone, but that's not easy in the context of a, of a home setting, especially if you have to care for someone, right? So really, it would have been better to recommend masks and even non-fit test, better even to have a non-fit tested respirator in a, in a home setting. The, the thing is, exposure involves all the time you're exposed. It isn't just when you're out, you know, going to the restaurant or shopping, it's all the time you're in contact with people. And so it's home, it's, it's everything you do, anytime you're in contact with people, there's some exposure, there's a risk, unless all those people are staying home. <laughs> it's like, that, that's the key. And so what, you know, we can't, just, we can't leave out that home exposure in thinking about transmission. Very important. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask is, it, what would have been successful on masks? So looking back at what we did and, you know, it, like you said, it, I, I agree that um, we kind of had it backwards. We should have been protecting ourselves instead of telling people to protect other people. I, I understand that. What, what else might've been successful and what lessons have we learned? You know, one of the things that NIOSH has been doing research on in the past four or five, even maybe longer time period is um, the whether we can, in, in, first of all, design better and then implement the use of elastomeric respirators in healthcare settings. And if that had, if we had had that, if those had been in the stockpile, if um, healthcare workers had each had their own elastomeric respirator handy, if they'd been fit tested and trained on how to wear them, 
uh, we could have alleviated immediately all the supply issues with respect to N95 filtering face piece respirators, which are worn once in healthcare and thrown away. Now, I know in you know other industrial settings or other workplaces, you we don't we discourage the wearing once and throwing away. You can wear them at least five to ten times. But an elastomeric respirator you can wear many, many times. It, it, a single one would have lasted a healthcare worker all the way through the pandemic. And um, then think about what we could have done with the supply of N95 filtering face piece respirators. All the rest of the healthcare workers or uh, people working in healthcare who weren't as highly exposed as those caring for, for patients could have had an N95, and not a face, not a surgical mask and not a filter, uh, not a, a cloth mask. And then think we could have even had supply available eventually as we ramped up um, manufacturing for the whole, um, the whole population. And, and especially for workers in other settings who were also at risk in essential workplaces. So um, that could have happened by the end of 2020 if we had started with elastomeric respirators, but we didn't start with elastomeric respirators and we didn't even start with enough N95s. So we were sort of stuck from the beginning. And it's unfortunate because we really know what will work in healthcare. And, and what's a shame is we, we still aren't there. No, uh, we're still not there. The, the healthcare industry needs to get on board and get proper respiratory protection, period. Whether it's for COVID or a biological weapon or TB or, you know, whatever it could be, the, the yep. SARS and MERVs and all that other stuff. And, and it's just, it's frustrating as heck to see them not doing that. Yep. Um, so, so I, somebody I, you might invite to come and to talk about this is uh, Dr. Stella Hines at the University of Maryland Medical Center. They've been using elastomeric respirators since 2009, since the novel H1N1 pandemic, which was a very limited pandemic, but uh, they basically decided to adopt it. And she's done a lot of research on how to make that work. And they've been using elastomeric respirators throughout the pandemic very successfully. Be really good to hear from her. How did, she, how did they make that work? Absolutely. I'll definitely follow up on that. Now, there's a text question, I think, kind of leads into something else I wanted to, to talk about that um, he found ironic and wrongheaded during the pandemic was professionals who argued that for public, an N95 respirator would be less effective because they couldn't be fit tested. And that assumes cloth masks or surgical masks. Surgical mask is well sealed, which they're not. Your research shows that even non-fit tested N95s provide significantly more filtration efficiency. Would you agree with that? You know, I did a study uh, with, so FDA had a regulation on the books. It's still on the books, but it, 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 does, it doesn't seem to have played a role in the pandemic that a respirator manufacturer could have their respirator certified or, or um, cleared for use in, by the public during a public health emergency. And there were several of those on the, on the market for a number of years. I helped a company evaluate one of those, their respirator, by recruiting a panel of subjects that met the NIOSH uh, bivariate panel requirements. But the subjects were completely untrained, meaning they, had no, they did not know anything about wearing a respirator. And we didn't train them. We just gave them the instructions, the manufacturer's instructions, and had them wear the, the respirator. Now they don't get the 100 by any means that you would expect, but quite a lot of them got a fit factor that was better than any fit factor you would get with a surgical mask or a cloth mask. So it does, it did suggest to me, and the reason for that is really twofold. One is uh, really, really good filters. Respirators have great filters, right? And the other is they are actually designed to be fit. I mean, yes, we have to do fit testing in workplaces to be sure, but they are inherently better designed to fit than any cloth or surgical mask. So with just some basic instructions, 
most people could get them on correctly. We did have a few, a few. Uh, we did we did make some observations about people putting them on, and you know, once and one or two didn't quite get them on the right way. A lot of them had problems getting the straps in the right place or forming the nose clip. Those are the kinds of things we could have taught the public during the pandemic. We could have had any number of videos or, you know, uh, the president even could have demonstrated how do you wear a respirator, right? right. <laughs> it would have been easy. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of ways to demonstrate this. Um, and even when we didn't make a whole lot of effort, people did pretty well and they got much better than I've ever seen with a surgical mask or a cloth mask. Now, I'm thinking one pushback you might get, and particularly from the industrial hygiene community, is that you're, you're issuing a bunch of respirators without medical evaluation. Right. What's your response to that? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think, as I said before, um, I mean, N95 filtering face piece respirators are really not the, the, the most onerous uh, type of respirator to wear. Um, it's other classes of respirators that put more, you know, more physiologic strain on you, uh, especially as you move towards like a self-contained breathing apparatus, for example. Um, the N95 filtering face piece respirator has relatively low breathing resistance, especially the better ones, that, you know, the better manufactured ones. And uh, they are more comfortable than I think people, I think a lot of people have had experience with ones that either didn't fit well, had high breathing resistance, um, you know, and there are a lot of them, unfortunately, still on the market. I, I think NIOSH is working hard to make that, to change that with regulations. But um, I've worn very comfortable filtering face piece respirators. So I think it is, it is possible to find one that fits well, is comfortable, and, and that you can communicate with. That's another important thing that really yeah. doesn't put a lot of strain on you physiologically especially for people like teachers and others that uh, need to Absolutely. communicate. And, and, I, and I, I, I guess, um, well, let me, let me do this. Let's go to the roundup and we'll, we'll get a couple more questions before we have to wrap it up. Sure. The roundup is brought to you by April air providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, Cliff, let me ask if you have any final questions or thoughts. I, I just have uh, a final comment. And, you know, I, I think we've all heard uh, all these pros and cons about wearing masks and whether kids should wear them or shouldn't wear them in schools and, and all this other stuff. And I think the most compelling thing that I heard w was recently, uh, it was last week, they were talking to a teacher and this particular teacher was a speech teacher. She, she helped kids that had, you know, speech impediments uh, in school. And, and she had great difficulty because typically this type of teacher would demonstrate you know, with her mouth, the alphabet and the pronunciation and, 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 and so on and so forth. And she was just, you know, really at her wits end, uh, you know, trying to demonstrate, you know, what she needed to demonstrate. And that to me, you know, was the most realistic, uh, you know, situation. You know, I, I thought that, you know, what she encountered was undeniable. All the other stuff, I think, you know, you could be on either side and have an opinion so on and so forth. So I just wanted to mention that, that I guess there are going to be some kids that are going to be a little bit behind in, uh, in speech as well. Let me, uh, let's go back. I, I do want to mention the other document we talked about. And I don't know if John, if you can go back to that website we were on just a moment ago and it was what makes a good mask study. So part two was, um, and, and I partnered on both of these with a number of very good uh, epidemiologists, Angie Ulrich, Kevin Eskendon, Corey Anderson, and then Mike Osterholm, who leads SIDRAP. And um, what we did is we took some of those studies that everybody was really hyping, especially in the press. One of the, the, one, the one study that's most hyped is uh, the one from Bangladesh, but there are others as well. We took a bunch of those and we um, sort of looked more deeply into what did they really tell you? 
what, what was really done. And what we found that was that there were a lot of problems with these, these studies and they're understandable problems because one of the issues is how do you do a study of, of, of masks without all the other things that also went on? How do you, how do you just have masks when there are so many other interventions? People stayed home, uh, pe you know, people were uh, being careful about who they were interacting with. So uh, one of the really key problems I found with all of these studies is we really didn't know much about people's exposures. And the assumption was that everybody had the same exposure, whether they were wearing a, a cloth mask or a surgical mask or whatever, or nothing. Well, that's clearly not the case. And there was no effort to evaluate exposure to see whether or not there was equivalence. And there wasn't really an effort to try and evaluate the confounding that is brought about by multiple interventions. And particularly if somebody is wearing a mask, they're also probably being careful in other ways, right? So you have that part of that, that sort of bias as well. And the outcome measures that they were using, um, seropositivity, for example, in the Bangladesh study, they didn't measure seropositivity at baseline and assumed that when they measured seropositivity, meaning antibodies in your blood, that that occurred after, the, you know, sometime during the study period. But really, that could have occurred well before the study period especially since the Bangladesh study was done towards the end of 2020. So we, we sort of picked apart a lot of these studies and at the end of the day, we couldn't really find one that did what we hoped it would do, which was to demonstrate any, any um, efficacy. So this is face masks for COVID passed their largest test yet. A rigorous study finds that surgical masks are highly protective, but cloth masks fall short. That was in nature, and that was the Bangladesh study that was being hyped. Ooh, this was being hyped even before it was actually published, which really annoyed me. That's another thing we said. We really need to stop focusing on preprints or even on people who go to press, do press releases with their data before it's ever been published or even put into a preprint. We need to be more careful. This uh, was a next study was um, the, the headline. We picked the headlines and, and then talked about the studies themselves. We studied a million st students. Well, first of all, they didn't study a million students. There, there wasn't anything like a million students in these in this study. But that's what the New York Times does to get you to sort of read the article, right? Right. And but. Is this was a guest essay by the two people who were the uh, researchers. I can't imagine they were happy when they said, you know, a million students. But um, actually, this the study had many problems with it as we read as we began to read through, and um, it really it didn't separate out infections for staff versus students, for example. So, and we know that staff were at much greater risk than students ever were, unless they had a co comorbidities or were at risk, uh, you know, for health because of health issues. Adults are are much more at risk from COVID nineteen and have been throughout the, especially for serious outcomes throughout the pandemic. Um, so that's what this article was about. And um, actually, our group is now working on a. Uh, we're going to take these this sort of approach and and these studies but others and develop a peer-reviewed publication that tries to do the same thing but try to um, reach a, a bigger audience in illustrating for people how difficult it really is to do a study like this during a pandemic and i was telling joe when we talked about this earlier uh, you know, early in the pandemic, Angie and Mike and I sort of brainstormed, well, how would we do a study? How would you do a study for masking? What, what would you need? What would, it, what would that look like? And I kept saying, I have to know what people's exposures are so I can know that they are equivalent for the, the masking group versus the non-mask group, right? And the only group I could come up with that would, where I could actually have some control over that or some, some um, information about that 
would have to be workers. It would have to be a workplace. And I said to uh, Mike and Angie, we should go to Target and talk to them because they've got so many stores around the country. We could pick a store where they did have masking and we could pick a store where they didn't have masking. And we know, but we could know so much more because we know a lot about people's exposures when they're working in Target. We know what that exposure is like. So we could have said, oh, those people would be very similar. Let's see what masking did in terms of infection rates. But we never, that wasn't ever thought about when people were doing these studies. And, and we never actually had the time and the, and the, um, you know, the uh, resources to do that kind of study. But if I had, that's what I would have done. So let's finish on a positive note. What are, what are some of these um, good things that have come out of, of this uh, pandemic? And then if there's anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up, please let us know. Well, I think um, from a respirator perspective, and since that's my area of expertise, I think there have been there has been more innovation in respirator design in the last two years than there was in the 20 years before. Um, it's been somewhat astonishing. Not all of it's going to, to stick. Not all of it is going to make it, um, especially as we move into a time when people are not buying all of these products. But some of them are, and some of them are good um, improvements. You know, masks that are better designed comfort, um, that masks that have some issues, you know, so offer some improvements over communication. Um, I think NIOSH uh, has a, a mission, it should take as its mission, um, helping some of these small businesses continue to develop and, and improve on their designs. And there was a, a NIOSH DARPA um, um, sort of a contest for good designs. I think they should continue to do that sort of thing, but provide a lot more money to people who, who really have gotten fairly far. Um, I, I do think that it's been a really good experience for the industrial hygienist because we've had to think about infectious disease for the first time. And for those of us who've been thinking about this for many years, um, We've been sort of knocking our heads against the wall, trying to get the even our community to really understand infectious disease. And it's, it's different. It's similar and yet different because it's the worker themselves who is infected and the source, as well as the person you want to protect. So that's a really, that's a sort of paradigm shift in the way we think about exposure and protection. And I could go on, but those are the those are the things that come to mind right now. Well, I've got a quick question sort of related um, that came in from a listener. That given the widespread use of face covering, surgical masks, filtering face piece, can we expect to reduce the requirements for medical evaluation, training, and fit testing for respirators by members of the public? And I, I think I, that kind of wraps things up real nicely for us. Sure. You know, I have been pushing for um, and recommending um, when I talk with policymakers and others, that we really do need to think about um, standards for public respirators for public, for the public. And uh, we have a new barrier face covering standard from ASTM. I was on the committee that helped develop that. Uh, we need to improve that standard. And um, I think at least what we need to require is that uh, respirators for the public need to have similar types of filters as respirators similar types of low breathe, even lower breathing resistance. So, you know, move towards the greater comfort and they need to have been evaluated for fit on a panel of subjects, even if we don't do fit testing. But I also think we could be developing simple ways to help people fit test, you know, something that they can do themselves. And I, the innovation has to be there. It's, there are so many um, small sensors, for example, uh, easy ways probably if we can just put our minds to it to do fit testing. So I don't know about medical evaluation, but I think fit testing for the public could be here or sooner than later. And I certainly think better respirators really, respirator-like masks for the public are around the corner. 
I think that's a great way to finish this up. And uh, we, we really appreciate you joining us again. And then your your passion for the topic is obvious, um, Dr. Lisa Brosseau. So thanks again. I'm sure we'll be talking again. Cliff will be putting out his blog. We'll put links to the uh, documents we looked at and referenced in the blog. Uh, before we go, I want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host, uh, John. you got to have faith at the controls. Of course, this week's guests and our growing group of uh, loyal audience. And uh, by the way, next week, we've got Patty Harmon coming on. She's with Claims Magazine. We're going to talk a little bit more on the uh, restoration side of things and some current events there. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.